Wait, can I can I can I read the first the, the opening? You can. You may. <laughs> March twelfth. Dear Mr. Henshaw, my teacher read your book about the dog to our class. It was funny. We licked it. Your friend, Lee Bots boy. <laughs> that's my that's my read of Lee Bots's uh, opening salvo to uh, Dear Mr. Henshaw. And hence the title. So yeah. So uh, so we we've arrived. We've arrived at. This is one of the 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 big. The big ones. This is this is probably the big one actually uh, of 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 Cleary's um, of Cleary's career. I mean, it was the one that I think got the most attention from uh, critics. Yeah, this is. Uh, I was I was talking to my kids about it tonight because neither of them have read it, and uh, they were like, "What is it?" And I said, "Well, Beverly Cleary got a couple of letters from a couple of boys who were like, "Hey, could you please write a book about divorce?" And Beverly Cleary was all. Well, I don't know anything about divorce, but I'll give it a shot. And then she then proceeded to like write the definitive young adult novel on divorce, <laughs> like one of the most painfully believable novels about a child of divorce. Yeah. No, I mean, uh, by the way, uh, I'm John McCoy. Oh, I'm Phil Gonzalez. <laughs> and this is Click a Cast of Beverly Cleary podcast. And uh, we've made it through the 50s, the 60s, and now we are in the, this is the 80s? Is 80s, yeah, 80s. 80s. Oh we also God. made it through the 70s. We made it through the 70s. I mean, there's a, there's a part of me that wants to see this book as a book of the, of the 70s because... Um, big rigs. Big rigs, tr- trucking, um, the emphasis upon uh, sort of family dynamics in 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 drama uh but but this is wow i mean um i'll i'll come clean you know this book came out long after i was reading beverly cleary Uh and it was not a book i read as a child it was a book as i've mentioned before that dan read over and over again he was somewhat obsessed with this book uh my, my little brother dan some of you may be aware of and um and, and, and so reading this through, this was the, I had read uh, excerpts from this, but this is the first time I read the whole thing through. Oh, really? And uh, I mean, I read the whole thing through. I, I'm not lying. I just, just read it through. And I mean, not that this is a great feat to read a Beverly Clary book through <laughs> in one sitting, but, but quite often for this podcast, I'm an old man, you know, I read a couple chapters a night and we do take our time between these episodes. Uh, but but I just read this this through and uh, I was astonished by it actually. I mean I was expecting it's, to be astonished by it, but well I I did grow up with this book. This yeah. book came out when I was in elementary school and uh, so I got it immediately. It, I I I think I've mentioned in the past that my mom had subscribed me to like Book of the Month Club or whatever, like the kids. So it just came in the mail one day, like a book club edition hardback and. I remember I haven't read this book in years, but I remembered every line like because I read it so many times and I had remembered this book as being the dense Beverly Cleary book, like the long one that it took me a long time to read each time. But honestly, this is probably one of her shorter books word wise. Yeah. yeah. Like you can sit and comfortably read this in about 45 minutes. 
Right, but but it is enormously dense. It's a, it is very s- dense. Stylistically, thematically, very a very dense book and a very hard book to kind of chew on. I think for mm-hmm. for any any child, um, but an amazing work. Um, I, I I'm, I'm having a hard time knowing where to start with it though, because <laughs> um, I guess well, first I, off, it's a, it's an epistolary novel, right? And like flowers for Algernon you get to see this person's mind develop like as the story goes along uh unlike flowers for Algernon it it doesn't go go south halfway through (laughs) but uh but what amazes me about this book is it's a book of it's partly about learning how to write from experience like because the main character wants to be a writer and in such a short amount of space, Beverly Cleary demonstrates realistically a person learning command of their writing ability, like learning to write. Like it just happens. You watch this boy become more confident in his writing as as it goes along. It's it's an astonishing feat for something that is so spare. Right. You know, it's it's interesting you bring up Flowers for Algernon for a couple of reasons. One is uh, that's a book I probably should do on sophomore lit sometime ah. or, or the story. Uh, I don't think it ever needed to be more than the story. I think it, right, uh, the right, right. story was perfect. But um, but unlike Flowers for Algernon, I mean, Flowers for Algernon relies upon, I would say, the 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 Big Bang Theory approach towards smart people, meaning as the main character, Charlie becomes smarter, he starts to use bigger words. Right. And he uses Latinate words and his constructions become confusing. It's sort of you know, now it's 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 a good story. I don't want to take away from it, but it, it really is sort of reaching for effect to make you convinced that this character is becoming a a super genius. There's no reaching for effect in this. This is a book in, in Dear Mr. Henshaw, we actually get to see someone slowly learning how to put words together to to slow themselves down and to observe a world that they might have just been coasting through. And the therapeutic effects of words and the imaginative effects of words and the the a young mind becoming part of a society of writers and it's something i didn't realize until this read through was just how many plates she had spinning in the air while this story was going along because to a kid it's just sort of a you're you're just sort of it's a coming of age story for like that you kind of read but you you understand subconsciously there's something deeper going on with it and then as an adult reading it i was like Wow, it, there's just a lot of moving parts that she is just shuffling effortlessly from one one little theme. To, like within scenes, you have like all these degrees of remove from the story itself because it's not just the story that's happening. You're hearing it through the voice of a child who is consciously writing it down in order to write things down. Like, but also he's experiencing the emotions as he's writing it like and he's puzzling things out for himself as he's like there's so many like layers of narrative here for a children's book aimed at elementary school students right and and while the main character of this book 
um, we, we, we start out with the main character in second grade and it goes, I how does it go just through the next year or does it go through two years after that? I don't. Um, fifth grade, I think through sixth grade. Through sixth grade. And, and it, so we have a character going from around seven or eight to around 11 or 12. And the other, th- but, but this book, I think more than any other Beverly Cleary book gives that glimpse of the child looking into the adult world with growing understanding, trepidation, the, the, the sort of um, the, the sort of anxieties that come from a child looking at and starting to understand adult concerns. Yeah. Um, this book, you know, Clary never wrote a book for adults, but this book was the as close as she got to her uh, big Judy Bloom adult yeah. novel because it really does in, in investigate also from the mother's perspective the disappointments of young marriage the hints at why she might have gotten married in the first place and there's there's kind of this whiff of sexuality around this whole book that's really interesting to me and mm-hmm. the way in which uh our, our our hero lee botts feels frustrated because he realizes that the integrity of his family depends upon the affection of his parents and right. and and so and that's a that's a weird situation that you you find yourself in you you start to become aware of when you're around this age that that your family unit in some way depends on your parents having a good a good sex life and that's a really awkward uh, thing to to realize <laughs> Well, before we get too deep into Lee Botts' parents' sex life, uh, <laughs> let me just give a quick rundown of the story for the listeners, in case they're not familiar with it, because unlike the Ramona books or the books about a mouse that rides a motorcycle, and that's the end of the plot, this book has a lot going on, even though it is pretty breezy. Uh, just the long and short of it is, this is an epistolatory book, like you said, it covers several years in the life of a kid named Lee Botts, who is writing to and receiving letters from, although you never read those letters, a, a children's book author named, uh, what is his first name? Oh. It's something Henshaw. In any case, uh, Mr. Henshaw, who has written, who, who's the kid's favorite author. And over the course of these letters, you learn that, well, over the course, between two of the letters, his parents get divorced. He and his mother move to California to live in like a, a, a very small home. His mother gets a job as a caterer, and Lee has to start at a new school. And it's the story of him coming to terms with his parents' divorce, a father who is a truck driver and is never around, who is forgetful about his son, who is immature, uh, who who frequently forgets to send the money, to send the Christmas presents, and also Lee dealing with being the new kid at school, which is symbolized by the fact that someone keeps stealing his lunch from his lunch bag. Uh, he devises a burglar alarm system for a lunchbox, uh, which sort of makes him a little popular at school because people are like, that's different. Uh, he makes his first friend. His father returns at one point to, in one of the most amazing scenes in the book, uh, beg his mom to take him back. Uh, she says no, but at this by this point, Lee has sort of come to terms 
with what his family is and he comes a little more centered he also uh gets honorable mention in a writing contest because over the course of the book he's been learning how to write and uh starts realizing that he may have something inside of him uh that could be uh, a writer like his like his hero mr henshaw and that's more or less the story yeah very less like (laughs) (laughs) well and and as as we've been saying it it as the as the story goes along we 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 get to see lee uh grow from being a hesitant jokey cagey child writer who thinks writing is dumb who is angry and disengaged with the world to a someone who becomes just just a natural a naturally gifted voice and and it's it's an interesting book also because cleary points out that the development of that voice is the first step yeah and lee is not at the end of this book lee is not going to write the great american novel he may never write the great american novel but he at least has developed the tools of exploring his inner world on on paper well let's talk a little bit about his initial interactions with mr henshaw because that is that the the whole beginning of this book is this weird this weird back and forth relationship between a young boy and a famous author and without ever hearing henshaw's side of the story you get the feeling that what what is utterly meaningful to Lee Botts is not as meaningful to this author who responds to this boy with very flip, very canned responses to his questions. You can tell he gets fan letters probably quite a bit. Uh, at one point, Lee sends him a list of questions and he gets embarrassed because Mr. Henshaw has responded. The one I always remembered as a kid is he's like, what is your full name? And Henshaw responds, messing a round, (laughs) which as a kid, I remember reading it and not getting the joke for like several read throughs because I was like eight years old. I didn't get it. And then I was like, oh, that's uh, kind of snarky. But then what happens is Henshaw sends him a list of questions and uh, he reluctantly begins answering them. And as he answers them, the whole first major part of the book is him telling basically is the story of his life in this these in this very structured uh, uh very writer's school esque writing school esque list of tell us about yourself questions so what do you what do you think this 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 old guy is like doing at his place well you know I, i've mentioned before that in in cleary books sometimes people can be a little bit um snippy and argumentative and catty and i i do I do admire the fact that Cleary has made the decision to um, to elide Mr. Hinshaw's actual letters, partly because yeah. that gives us only Lee Botts, but also because later in the book when uh, Lee starts writing in his journal, yes. he continues to address the journal as Mr. Hinshaw because this is a crutch that he's developed to get him to start writing uh, that, he, that he needs for a while, and so there's a there's a um, a conflation between the two, and it's it's a fun it's a fun book that way, uh, 
this is not typical Clary. Clary does not normally mess around with uh, with form. Mm-hmm. She she's she's not a big she's not going to dazzle us with her brilliance that way. But this is a book that is a very very clever book and very clever about the way in which uh, letters are written and and the I mean the the she's got to do something here from an author's standpoint which is she's got to come up with a plausible reason why lee would embark on this uh on this journal of his and so we have it set up that mr hinshaw <laughs> turns around and 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 gives him this list of 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 uh of, of questions now i didn't think uh hinshaw was necessarily being a jerk i think he was being he was being because uh, later in the book when um when lee meets that other author what's her name yeah uh, uh mrs mrs uh, badger yes mrs badger describes having met mr henshaw and saying that he had a twinkle in his eye i ha- i think we're supposed to i think we're supposed to extrapolate from what's happened that henshaw is a little a little bit annoyed by by the uh the presumption of lee sending a, a a long list of questions and 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 wanting mr hinshaw to do his homework for him in effect yes uh, by next friday but but so, so he turns it around as as a i think as a joke it turns around it turns out to be this marvelous joke that gets uh lee writing that 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 uh, at first under duress because his mother finds out that, that Mr. Hinshaw has sent him this list and his mother is also sort of at her wits end as to what to do with this child who just kind of hangs around the house and does nothing. So, and, and they, they also have a broken television. So right. this is a kind of a, a, a useful thing for her as a parent to say, <laughs> no, you got it. You have to answer all of Mr. Hinshaw's questions. What I love about it is that Lee gets, angry at Mr. Henshaw when he gets this list of questions and it inspires it prompts the first long letter to Mr. Henshaw like when he gets worked up about something he writes and he writes a lot and it reads pretty naturally like what would come pouring out of a kid who doesn't have anyone to talk to and and I think it's she does a good job only through Lee's responses in showing how Henshaw encourages this continual, like, test, like, sort of continually, uh, subtly prompts Lee to continue writing uh, about himself. Like, it's, it's, he never gives Lee assignment assignments. He kind of makes these suggestions. And when Lee asks questions, he answers them. But, uh, she, I think she does a good job at ultimately giving you just enough information about who Henshaw is, while still keeping him a bit of a mysterious character. It's such a, it's such a, a smart book about the the creative process. I think the, the the what what Henshaw provides for Lee is the um, is the writer's equivalent of. Uh, you know, give me give me a, a, an action and a place in an improv theater. You know, he, he's he's Lee is unable to 
to write, you know, just he's unable to start writing unless he's unless he's provoked. And mm-hmm. so Henshaw provokes him. I and, know. I think it's great. And, right. And then eventually that's what makes it such a a startling and uh, deserved uh, victory later in the book when Lee begins one of his journal entries, Dear Mr. Henshaw, and crosses it out. Mm-hmm. It, it 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 does mark a point. There's there are these points throughout the book where you can see that Lee has made has has turned a corner in one way or another. You know, whether it be in his writing ability or whether it be in his understanding of his mother, whether it be in however he understands his father, um, and part of you know the reason this book. Is, is made me feel so taken aback as I was reading it is I think that the lesson that Cleary presents again and again the uh, in maturity is there isn't going to be an answer mm-hmm. or there isn't going to be the answer that you want. Lee wants there to be an answer for why his father left so there can be a repair of that relationship. And in the end of the book, he realizes he's not going to understand his father. And and that's it, there, there's all these moments there throughout this book where Lee keeps coming across these un, these these understand these mo- moments of understanding. There's this sequence where he goes for a walk and he sees the monarch butterflies uh, getting ready for their migration and it's a beautiful sequence, but it's also the sequence that shows that Lee has arrived at that point as a writer where he can indulge himself a little bit in, in these observations and, and, it, and, and that it can carry you along even without plot. One of the brilliant moments in this is, you know, is the fact that, well, A, Beverly Cleary is giving the readers a lesson in, in how to write like as she goes along, which is something she's never done. Uh, like she doesn't in her books, the characters aren't, she doesn't really have characters who are writers in her books. She's not Stephen King. Like there's not a, a novelist in every other, every other story. Uh, so she takes the time to sort of walk the reader through the creative process. And I think one of the amazing things that she does is tell the writer in the story, you're not ready to write a story. Like you're not, you're not ready to tell a story yet. You're not at that point in your in your writing ability. You're not you're not at that point. There are other kids who do write stories in the writing contest portion of the book and they win, like they get prizes. But there's that thing where it's like I don't know how to say it. It's like there are people who pursue an art and they move ahead and they do their art and they maybe are successful or not, but they're not that great. And then there are people who are who know enough or are told soon enough not to rush ahead and take the time to learn the fundamentals and really learn like the basic parts of your craft and get good at those before taking the next step and that's how you really become uh like profoundly good at what you do and i think it's intriguing that in this book, much like there are no answers to the questions about his relationship, his parents' relationship, there's no 
easy step to the next part of being a successful writer or creator or artist of any sort. Like it's a long process, kids. And and after five years of trying, you finally successfully write a story about taking a truck ride with your dad to go pick up some grapes. Like that's it. And that's but that's worthy. That's worth the it's worth it. And when the and when the 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 woman, Miss Badger at the end, compliments him on it you can tell that like while the other kids maybe did competent jobs writing their stories she was impressed by what he did like it showed a level of of craft and care and insight that the other kids didn't have and for a kid reading this book that's very validating because it makes it it shows you that the little steps are worth it well the other thing that's interesting to me about the discussion of the creative process here is it made me think of all the way back to Beezus and Ramona when mm. in the sequence where Beezus is concerned about whether or not she has a, uh, a strong enough imagination yes. and she paints her dragon and what happens is she uses the mistakes she makes to come up with this outlandish creature and that's um, a celebration of sort of the freedom of uh, imagination. But this book kind of uh, takes, a, takes a very different tack because later late in the book when, uh, when Lee actually cares about possibly winning this contest, he comes up with a rather clever concept about a man made of wax who is melting away it's 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 sort of reminded me of oh what was it what you know ken cosgrove's strange science fiction stories for madmen they were always very highly uh highly you know conceptual that that kind of like they're more um an image than they are an actual plot right and 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 mr hinshaw writes back and says there's not really a story here, you know, and, and he points that out. And that's, you know, in, in the end, what what uh, what Lee writes and what he gets recognized for is something more akin to uh, a Raymond Carver story. Right. I mean, this whole book is kind of a Raymond <laughs> Carver story. Certainly it ends like a Raymond Carver story. <laughs> and Lee Botts didn't have an editor rewriting half of it. So, <laughs> so it's, um, so it's a, a, this is this whole book is in some ways championing the kind of psychologically acute strongly realistic fiction that uh cleary wrote throughout her life uh-huh. except for you know of course ralph s mouse <laughs> except and we just we just lost another few listeners there <laughs> by slamming ralph s mouse again <laughs> it is funny though that she just the book before this was just the last ralph s mouse book <laughs> and right. then she just she, she just like hauls off and hits a home run with this one <laughs> No, I think it, I think it's interesting you brought up Beezus and Ramona because that was very much about a child who didn't think they were capable of or even worthy of uh, artistic expression, and this is very much a book about a kid who has has more of an ego than Beezus ever did, and it's more cocky and a little more sure of himself, 
And it's kind of like, okay, you you obviously think you've got something. So what do you do with that? Like if this was Beezus, she had made her dragon and she could throw paint on a paper unselfconsciously now. Now what do you now how do you really start refining what you have? And that's what Henshaw like does. He kind of like by in drips and drabs like gives this kid the tools he needs to to become a young a young author i just think it's fascinating and this is all happening of course while the actual plot of the book is occurring right and and there there is quite a bit of plot and and it's again very um it's 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 very subtle plotting there it's it's the kind that one of the major plot points happens when lee is on the phone with his father yeah. and he hears in the background a young boy talk and he realizes that his father is with his new girlfriend who has a boy and he feels the sting of replacement at that point mm-hmm. that um, he, he didn't necessarily feel when he knew that his father might be seeing other women now he also realizes that those other women come with other families as well what's remarkable is that's the chapter where after he hangs up on his father the next chapter is the one where he crosses out dear mr henshaw and he talks about not being angry with his father anymore that he understands something about his father yeah and the the the, 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 that that through the process of thought and writing he has entered into an imaginative world where he's he's able to understand what his father is going through whether or not he agrees with his father's choices whether or not he would want his father to make those choices he understands those choices and he understands his mother a lot more when she talks a little bit about the fact that you know that she got married young out of convenience basically and he asks her there's this moment that even when i was a kid and would read this would make my heart hurt is when he asks mom do you still love dad and her response is please don't ask me and as a kid i didn't understand this adult relationship but i knew that what she said had weight and pain and meaning behind it and there are so many moments like that with his parents because his mom doesn't really have a whole lot of friends either. She works and she comes home. And this is the scene where they go out and they have a bucket of, they share a bucket of chicken while looking at the waves. And the chicken place forgot to pack spoons, so they have to eat with chicken bones, which was always a eat the mashed potatoes with chicken bones, which is always was a vivid image to me as a kid. I was like, it was so real. Like you could you could Cleary suddenly not only made the scene very vivid emotionally and visually, but tactilely. Like you know what that feels like. Like you can you can picture that feeling in your mouth. Like and you know I don't know. It's it's a brilliant little bit of sensory writing. Uh, and then she says that uh, when she watches the waves, she always feels that no matter how bad things seem, life will still go on, which is kind of the most reassurance Lee gets in the whole book. <laughs> which is just which is just kind of like things don't necessarily get better but at least we're just, well, at least we're here 
and your father is a jerk and you're going to learn that and he's probably never going to really remember your birthday. Oh, and also the conversation where Lee finds out about the girlfriend and the boy is also the conversation where he finds out that his dad lost his dog. <laughs> right. He has a he has a dog, a uh, bandit, the dog who his father got in the divorce because he's a truck driver, so he needs companionship on the road, so dog. And then he had to stop in a snowstorm, I think it was. Yeah. And he left the cab door open and the dog ran away in the middle of a snowstorm. And so for much of the book, you also have this anxiety about this poor missing dog that the father keeps insisting he's looking for, but the father is so unreliable that you don't know if he is anyway. We've talked before about the way that Cleary is drawn to... Uh, economic issues in, in yeah. children's books this is about as dire as she gets i think yep. this this book the 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 tiny house that they live in that has been occluded the view from this house has been occluded by the putting the construction of a new duplex in front of it yeah so <laughs> and it used to be like a carriage house it right. used to be like a side house right and he they live next to a a gas station where all he hears all night long are people filling up their 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 tanks with gas. You know, there's got to be fumes coming from that. Yep. Um, and and the television is broken through most of this book. If I don't know if they ever get it fixed. Well, I think it's I, I think that this is that you you mentioned that this feels very 1970s realism, like in kids literature, but it also speaks to that early 80s, like post 70s like kind of economic thing that was happening and there were like this is where like divorce was really coming into like the national conversation uh this is where i started like my friend i had more and more friends whose parents were divorced and the idea that you were having to move into a small like one of my friend's fathers lived in a uh uh cold water like apartment complex with one bedroom and like you know like a bare light bulb like it was there's something very like not only like barely is it, this isn't the same as ramona's parents not having money this is uh this is a woman who is trying to support her child because her husband they broke up and he never made much money to begin with and now he's not even sending child support like it's there's something so like heavy about all of it. Yeah, yeah. No, it's a it's a very it's very heavy in 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 so many ways, and so the 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 parts at school, which in some ways seem to be the most familiar, clearly to me, they seem to yeah. be much more about kids relating to kids and having. Um, you know, having capers and pratfalls and stuff, and the, the, this whole there's someone who's stealing, uh, stealing Lee's lunch. Uh, it seemed a little less credible to me that 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 <laughs> the kids that there's some kid out there who is a mastermind who's able to slip out just parts of people's lunches without anyone else noticing, uh, because the way they describe the lunches being. Uh, how you know pretty much out there in the open and, and then there's this weirdness of of lee 
buying a metal lunchbox and creating his own uh, alarm system. Although that, I, I don't know if you, if, if you were like this, I, I certainly loved trying to make things when I was a kid and if they were electrical, all the better. So I, I, you know, I don't know what kids do today now that there is no, <laughs> there is no Radio Shack anymore. Although there really has not been a Radio Shack since the the nineties, at least not the old kind that sold you, you know, diodes and transistors. Actual diodes, yeah, in right. the back, in the in the back, in the front was always Tandies, but uh, right in the back was the diodes. No, uh, the 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 lunchbox caper does seem very Henry Huggins ish, except for the fact that. Uh, we get the scene, so he befriends like the school janitor, because uh, he has to walk to school slowly every morning, which is this vivid. He, his mom leaves for work, and Lee is left at home alone until school. But he hates being at home alone, so he walks to school. But you're not allowed to be on campus until ten minutes before the bell rings. So he just walks as slowly as he can to school to a, to sort of in this sort of like liminal state between like home and school and. One day he gets there and he helps the janitor or the custodian uh, raise the flag. And that becomes kind of his job. And he develops this rapport. Well, there's a scene where he gets so frustrated at his lunch getting stolen that he uh, grabs one of the lunches in the hall and he's going to kick it down the hall. And the custodian stops him and he's like, don't do that. He's like, I don't. He's like, he basically just says, like, I don't want to see you go down that path, kid. I don't want to see you give in to your anger like this. There's better ways, there's better things you can do. You're a smart kid, you'll find a way to to, to get around this. And and I that to me justifies the story because Lee starts he 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 creates the alarm for his lunchbox, but also he thinks to himself, like I'm in the end of the day, you never find out who the thief is, although I secretly believe it was the custodian. Uh, <laughs> he, uh, you never find out who the thief is. And one of the things he says is he's glad he didn't because he realized later on that it would have humiliated the kid who was stealing his lunch. And it could have been a kid who had less than he did. And it wasn't hurting Lee any to lose. It was just, it wasn't even his whole lunch I was getting stolen. It was the the special catered foods that his mother's boss would, would, would let him have. Uh, he learns this like sort of like abstract empathy for a person who he doesn't, who's only done him wrong. But it also, it's not just that he develops this empathy for a, a person who could be in more dire circumstances than him. It's it. He also thinks abstractly and has to th- and thinks creatively around the problem, around even caring about the problem. And I think that that's that's more than would have happened in a Henry Huggins book. Well, definitely, and the and this the in, ending to the lunch thief uh, part of the book is. I think thematically related to the growth that Lee goes through as a writer, because what we experience in The Lunch Thief is a thwarting of our desire for uh, a narrative answer. And we end up with what's instead a thematic answer, or we end up with this moment of epiphany this moment of grace in, 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 or this turn in character. And that's what Cleary sees as the mark of 
being a mature writer. And that's why uh, Mrs. Badger notices Lee's work is because he is writing about he's writing deeply about character and about the interior lives of character. Now, of course, this all hits home for me. You know, I, I am uh, an overeducated person who went to a a writing program and this was the kind of writing that we were, we had championed. Uh, Now that I'm older, I start to wonder is it really that bad to have a, a story with a really good plot? You know, is that you know, there's, there's a tendency amongst literary types to poo-poo uh, writers who are who write potboilers. I feel like um, you know th- that's a skill too, and that's a that's a that's a pleasure too. But um, but you know, th- this book is is about this kind of pleasure, I guess. Well, yeah, and it's about and it's about the the process and about, I don't know. I think it's, it's, it doesn't poop. I mean, obviously Cleary doesn't poop poo books that have plots. That's what she, that's her bread and butter. But, uh, uh, I think it champions being an observant person and appreciating that, you know, writing doesn't have to, like you said, like take you to lead you to answers, lead you to, uh, safe conclusions. I think it's a it's a gutsy move for a children's book author to write a book that's this deep and this emotional that doesn't offer any solutions. That kind of has as its central theme like there's no there's no there's n- there's no story to life. Like you just it just goes on like day after day. There's no there's no pat arch arc to your life. It's just the next thing happens and hopefully you learn as you as you move through it and the only other children's book i've seen really tackle that except it took them about a hundred times longer to do it is this series of unfortunate events series (laughs) which is ultimately about the fact that there are no answers to anything (laughs) that that life is a series of questions and the more you answer them just it just creates more questions that this book kind of does the same thing, but it shows that as not a, a frustration in life, but just like you said, like a sign of you're growing up and you're realizing that people are flawed and there's no pat answers and who, the, who stole the lunch bag isn't a isn't a Hardy Boys mystery. It's just someone doing something <laughs> and then you move on. You know, this isn't a, a series of unfortunate events podcast, but I, I do have to say I, 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 I love that series and I love the way it ended. But I, I, I'm curious to know what kids reading that series feel <laughs> like when they get to the end of that. Because it, it, really, it really becomes utterly diffuse at the end of that series. It, it sort of like everything splinters and deconstructs and, and falls apart. And suddenly you're reading Paul Oster. And, 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 and it's, well, suddenly it's, you're reading a Daniel Handler novel. <laughs> right, right. So it, it be, and, and I'm really really interested to see what happens with the Netflix series because the Netflix series has written by Daniel Handler has in some ways tightened up the plot of the uh, original books and made it a little bit more uh, sturdy and complex and interlocked and actually full featured as a plot rather than what I believe the first books were which was him just kind of making stuff up as he went along 
and then retconning it later to try and make it into a a, a plot. Well, I have no idea, but (laughs) that last, I know the last book is only going to be one episode long. So (laughs) may I, I don't, then he wrote an entire prequel series. So, you know, uh, apparently that ties in quite a bit. Plus, there's the Beatrice letters and the unauthorized autobiography of Lemony Snicket. We just got through listening to the entire series with uh, with Mitzi. Oh, yeah. So she didn't seem too confused by it, but I don't think she realized how diffuse it was. Like, I don't think she's old enough to understand just how much of a mind blow that last novel was. <laughs> Like to just to build that much spoilers for the end of series unfortunate events. It ended over 13 years ago. Uh, spoilers. There's no ending. Like it, the ending is just. There's no like. There's no stories. Don't he, he says stories don't have a beginning, a middle, and an end. If you think you're ever going to find answers to anything in life, you're you're living in a fantasy world. Right now, we can we actually can bring this back to. Uh, to dear Mr. Henshaw, because this book ends in a in a rather abrupt way, and and I Very. and and I've mentioned other Beverly Mitch and Amy book, and it just kind of like just <laughs> well, yeah, stop. They ran out of things to scream, and and a lot of the a lot of the Ralph S. Mouse books kind of just up and end. This is an interesting ending, though, to me. It it does it it just kind of stops, and if uh. <laughs> In the edition that I have, which has the original uh, Paul Ozlensky uh, illustrations, the the funny thing about it is it ends the last page about a little bit more than halfway down the page, and then the bottom of that halfway page is put up with a, a has a has a an illustration of Lee in it, yeah, and it it just has this feeling like. They're just cramming in whatever fits at the end, you know. It's like if if there had been, you know, two inches more, they would have put a bigger picture in. If there had been two inches less, they would, <laughs> you know. There's a kind of a, a provisional quality to it. But but what's interesting to me about that is how thematically that fits, because one of the things that uh, Lee has been dealing with at the end is he's frustrated that his father is coming to town only because. There's now uh, a delivery for him to make in his truck. There's there's a uh, there's a broccoli there's a, a a freezer car full of broccoli that he's going to take on on his uh, on his truck, and but 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 uh, but Lee says at the end maybe it was broccoli that brought Dad to Salinas, but he had come the rest of the way because he really wanted to see us, and th- there's there's this. <laughs> That's a really sadly mature thing to say, yeah. which is like, ah, well, you know, that's dad, but you know, at least I I got to see him. Yeah, and and that's an amazing that's an amazing ending. I mean, the, the it, it's it's um, and and it just stops. And um, I think that sometimes those abrupt endings can be the most memorable ones. Mm-hmm. I, I I've I've said before on this podcast, the most heartbreaking ending of a book I ever had, came across was when I read Stuart Little as a child hmm. uh, which just basically ends with Stuart still in pursuit of his bird friend not knowing where it is not knowing whether he'll ever 
find him again just kind of like walking off the page at the end of the book it was like he's just off and he's he's separated from his family there's no particular prospects for this little mouse person but but off he goes and it's such a strange ending to me like there was no resolution at all to that book and i still think about it probably twice a week (laughs) well you certainly mention it twice an episode (laughs) well i I was gonna say the last sentence of this book is i felt sad and a whole lot better at the same time and to be able to hold those two feelings in your heart simultaneously is hard and like you said a sign of entering that next step in your like life like to realize that something that made you feel so terrible is also a sign that you can feel better about yourself is is tricky and uh he's just witnessed his father beg his mother to take him back and her mom his mom saying there isn't a chance uh because of too many broken promises and things like that. And then his father has the most awkward exit from the story ever. He try he he's found the dog and brought him back to Lee and Lee gives the dog back to his dad because he doesn't want his dad to be lonely on the road. Uh cuz I think Lee realizes that the dad's probably not with that woman anymore who had the kid. Uh because he begged his mom to take him back (laughs) and that as bad as things are for lee at home like his dad's not a villain he's just a thoughtless jerk but he's not an (laughs) evil man who's trying to hurt lee he's just this person who's just never going to be a big part of his life and there's something sad about that but also well he's not a bad guy and that doesn't make me a bad guy and like i guess that's all i that's all that's gonna make me feel good today and then the book ends and you're like yep good for you kid like that's how it works enjoy the enjoy the next 70 years i assume he'll live to his early 80s he certainly lives through it to another book yeah yeah well, I'm looking forward to that book. Um, I don't, I don't know if I have any anything pithy to wrap this discussion up with because it's not that kind of a book. It, it, it really is a book that you sit with the characters for for a while. I, I, I do, I do recognize that this is the the um, the kind of character I found myself drawn to again and again. Yeah. As as a as a child, um, I've mentioned also before that perhaps my favorite uh, book uh, when I was a kid was Betsy Byers' The Midnight Fox, um, which also features a just a sort of a, a depressive, um, you know, kid who's who has to learn to become engaged with his world. Uh-huh. I don't know why that was such a uh, a trope in in my, in my childhood, uh, but but I guess I just uh, I guess that that was that was me as a kid. Uh, well, like I said, I read this book 
a, a million times. Uh, so much of it stuck out to me. And I realized that I always thought of it as a longer book because because you did sit, you could you could read each page several times, especially as a little kid, just to sort of take in what all was happening. Um, and part of the part of the the feel of the book comes from these illustrations by Paul O. Zielinski, uh, which are still printed with the book today. Uh, they haven't redone the illustrations for this book, as far as I've been able to find. Uh, the 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 first illustration is a picture of Lee writing in his journal with the the semi truck and the monarch butterflies and his dog and the writing circle like all sort of going in like a collage over his head and looking back on it it may be just the era in which I read it but Zelensky somehow manages to capture the look and feel of a made for TV movie. <laughs> like in every it has that like gritty grainy late 70s early 80s sort of ramshackle quality to it of like and maybe again it's probably just because that's when i read it but uh of it doesn't look like a sitcom it doesn't look like a major motion picture it's something that would be dramatized on tv and you and you'd watch and and be feel really weird about it and <laughs> I don't know. There's just something I really, there's something very tactile about the way he, about the way he illustrates. Yeah, no, they're, they're, I think they're great illustrations. Um, he, you know, he had done the, the Ralph book. He did this and I think he, and I know he did Strider. I don't know if he did anything else for Clary. Um, if he, if, if he had come along at a different point in Clary's, uh, career you know if he had been around a little earlier i could see him being a very uh, competent illustrator of the ramona books but i also would see that completely coloring the books in a in a different way oh definitely yeah he has a i don't know his his drawings are very uh they're very grounded in a way um i do wish that the last picture though of lee sitting strangely on his bed i do wish that he had he had worked in just a little mouse on a motorcycle, like zipping by, <laughs> like down in the corner, just to sort of tie it all together. Because <laughs> Lee is the kind of kid who would have been able to talk to Ralph. Now, you know what's weird about that? I mentioned the last time. The, um, Zelensky would go on to get more fame as the or a illustrator of picture books, and he won uh, the Caldecott for his Rapunzel which was uh, a remarkable, a, a beautifully illustrated book, but that has a much more self-consciously uh, Italianate uh, Renaissance feel to it. And wow. it's so, if you look up, if you just look up Zelensky and look up Rapunzel, you'll come up with the cover. And it's, it's such a, a completely different world. Uh, and he also did a... Um, uh, a Rumpelstiltskin that was really popular. Oh, I see. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Wow, you're very right. Wow, that's very, uh, very different from the uh, <laughs> from the boy who writes who writes who writes good. <laughs> uh, and I've never you... read Strider. Oh yeah. Uh, well, there we go. Strider came out after my time. I was uh, already too old for for Beverly Cleary books at that point. And uh, between it and uh, Muggy Maggie, there's a there's a gap now <laughs> in my Beverly Cleary uh, 
in my Beverly Cleary book. Speaking of which, what is the next Beverly Cleary uh, book? The next one is uh, Ramona Forever. Oh, it is. Which is the which was for a long time the last Ramona book, and then uh, Cleary decided at the very end of her career she would do one more Ramona book. Right. But uh, that was like fifteen years after. Oh yes. So so Ramona Forever was, I think her inti- her intended end yes it is Although, a it is a fitting end right to the ramona series uh and then the last ramona book comes off as more of like a a mini reboot or a weird right. coda to the whole series yeah it's it's the it's the uncomfortable uh let's 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 see what's going on with the cast of seinfeld now <laughs> yeah <laughs> what's going on is that danny's back <laughs> and they're still using that word to describe him <laughs> <laughs> that's what's going on with the last Ramona book <laughs> but we'll get to it but uh yeah so next uh next time we meet we'll be discussing Ramona forever right and that will be in what 2023 we'll, we'll do yeah. <laughs> you won't we won't have to wait t- I mean I don't even have to reread that one I've read that one I know that one inside and out oh dear I just realized I just remember what happens to that and now I'm going to cry don't cry wait till okay. the episode because Every single time. Every single time. <laughs> oh, boy. <laughs> In any case, and then Muggy Maggie at some point. So uh, I'm sure that will make you cry, too. I'm sure. I, I, yeah. Uh, well, anything else to add? Uh, no, except, uh, you know, listen to our other podcasts. I can't imagine that anyone just listens to this podcast <laughs> yeah. of ours, but... If you if you haven't, please listen to uh, to Phil's other. How many other podcasts do you have? You I have, have like three other podcasts. Three other podcasts. I oh have my a god! Deep, deep in Bear Country about the Berenstain Bears. I have. Uh, oh no! I have two other podcasts. This is my other podcast. I have. Uh, <laughs> I have. It's Del Toro time, which is a movie podcast I do with my uh, with my teenager Ollie, and then I have Click It Cast, a Beverly Cleary podcast with John McCoy, and you, of course, have. I have sophomore lit and, uh, you know, and I also, I'm here and there on other people's podcasts. Maybe, maybe I've appeared on your podcast. <laughs> maybe, maybe this podcast though, maybe click it cast. Maybe there's someone out there. This is the only show they listen to. Like they keep that podcatcher on their phone just in case we update <laughs> with another Beverly Cleary book. Well, if, whoever you are, you are my favorite listener. 